The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. It's one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. One of my favorite ones to teach. One of my favorite passages to think about and consider. Um, This is a really important, important text. It's a transitional text. We're going to see that this is where the book of Luke shifts out of this middle section that is comprised largely of the teachings of Jesus and moves back into more of the narratives and the actions of Jesus as he makes his way to Jerusalem. You're going to see this take place here. Um, But it's not just a story and a passage about what Jesus did past tense. This is a story about what Jesus does and is doing and will continue to do. This is an ongoing thing that takes place that we get to see through the life of one really um, unusual or unlikely character. And actually, as we see, it's actually the most likely character. So we'll get into that in just a few minutes. Like I said, this is going to transition away from much of the discipleship teachings of Jesus. And he's going to be making his way into um, Jerusalem. As we begin to work our way through the passion narratives, it actually lays out quite well. By the time we get to Easter, we're going to hit the resurrection accounts in Luke right at Easter. And we will finish the book of Luke around the first week in May. So I think the texts that are coming up are going to be... Um, Really exciting for us to look at. I will say this, though. I should have said first service. I didn't. But um, we are going to be taking a pause on this for the month of December. So December 2nd is the first Sunday of Advent, a season that looks forward and anticipates uh, the coming of Jesus Christ. And so we will be celebrating Advent throughout the month of December. So can I, can I just push on you guys a little bit? Each of the Advent weeks builds upon, um, builds upon the ones previously. And so I just want to encourage you guys, man, be with us in December. Track with us on this stuff. I think you're going to be really blessed by what the Lord shows us during that time. So that'll start on December 2nd. As for today, we still have, we have this story. Next week we have Zacchaeus, two of the coolest narrative stories in all the Bible. Let's dive right into this one. Starts out with the last of Jesus's more discipleship teachings as he moves into these narratives. So in verse 31, it starts off this way. It says, in taking the twelve, He said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished. Now, this is kind of a cool thing here. As you go through the scriptures and you read the stories of Jesus, as he's teaching his disciples about why he came and what he's going to do, this is the first time that he ties it to the prophecies that were written and says all of that stuff that's written is about to take place. Everything you've read about in the past is about to happen. We're going to Jerusalem for these things the prophet's written to take place, which is a good time for us to pause and remember something really important about the Bible. Um, if you're new to the church or you're new to church culture, you'll hear us say things like, oh, we're, we're reading the book of Luke or the book of Genesis or the book of Exodus or the, whatever the case may be, that, that the Bible is this collection of what we call books. But, but it's not books in the sense that like you would build a collection of, say, Charles Dickens books or Charles Dickens novels. And what I mean by that is you can get a collection of all the Charles Dickens stories and you can just pick one and read it. And that's all you really need to know. You don't need to know what happened in this story to understand Oliver Twist. You don't have to understand Oliver Twist to understand one of his others. Like they're, they're all standalone stories. They're just compiled simply because the same guy wrote them. That's not the Bible. The Bible actually uses the inspiration of God mixed with multiple people from multiple different backgrounds to tell one story. The entire passage of the Bible tells one story, and everything that's in it is about Jesus Christ. All of it is about Jesus Christ. Let me give you an example that's actually kind of important to know concerning our story here. In the Bible, there's this thing called Passover. It's a celebration of something that had happened all the way back in the book of Exodus. And as Jesus, even in our story today, is making his way to Jerusalem, he's going to Jerusalem to be there for Passover. So the Passover celebration, it's one of the feasts that all these guys would go to Israel to celebrate and and worship together. Um, But it's based in actual events that take place in the book of Exodus. 
And in the book of Exodus, the people of Israel are slaves. They're imprisoned to the nation of Egypt, and they're under a wicked, wicked man whose name is Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And he is an oppressive man who is constantly pushing harder and harder down on the people of Israel. And they cry out. They're just begging for mercy. And God sends a man named Moses. And through Moses, God delivers them out of the land of Egypt. And not just like with some commando raid, like the culmination of this event that delivers them out of slavery and out of this oppression is an event that the Jews would look back on and refer to as Passover. And the reason they call it that is this, that the judgment that God executes on Egypt for all of their wickedness, for the ways that they'd kept Israel oppressed and had been abusing his people, God executes a judgment on them. And he says this, he says, the firstborn of all of your children, the firstborn of all of your animals is going to be killed tonight. There's going to be an angel that's going to come through and the firstborn of your, this entire land is going to die. But he says to the people of Israel, but listen, here's how you'll escape that judgment. You're going to take a perfect spotless lamb. You're going to kill and sacrifice that lamb, and you're going to take the blood of that spotless white lamb, and you're going to apply it to your doorpost. And when that angel comes through, and when that judgment is being enacted on all of the land, when it sees the blood of the spotless lamb applied to your doorpost, it's going to pass over your house, and you will be completely spared from judgment. But it was even more than that because that also was the sign that those who had been spared, that they weren't just spared from the judgment, but Pharaoh eventually lets them go. So they were spared and then set free to go to their own land. And so this festival takes place, this feast of remembrance where they remember that act. Well, like I said, all the Bible's about Jesus. So when you fast forward and you get to, say, the book of Corinthians, you have Paul. And what is it that Paul says? He says, Jesus is our Passover lamb who has been slain for our behalf. So you look back into that whole story and it's like, hey, there was actually something happening there. It was more than just a historical event, but that historical event was pointing to Jesus and to his work, to what he does. And the same thing is true today. Like as we read this story, we're going to see that this is not just a historical account about something Jesus did, but it points to who Jesus is, but also to what Jesus is doing, what Jesus has done, what he's done for many of us, and what I hope he will do for many more of us if you're not part of the faith, the family of God here as well. So this is what we're looking at, that everything here is about Jesus. And now he's making his way to Jerusalem for Passover. And so he's telling them, guys, listen. That's what he says, where it says, see, we're going. It's like, look, look, guys, look, we're going to Jerusalem. And everything that the prophets talked about is going to take place. To which their initial response might be, sweet, finally, let's do this. The king returns, the Messiah we've been waiting for is going to come set us free. Because now they're not under the oppressive thumb, thumb of Egypt. They're under the oppressive thumb of Rome. So they are also maybe not enslaved, but oppressed by cruel dictatorships that are there in that place. And they're longing for the day that they're going to be set free again. And so here's Jesus. Listen, look, guys, look. We're going to Jerusalem. and Everything the prophets have been writing about, it, it's going to happen. Problem is, it includes some of those passages in the prophetic writings that they knew about, they don't really, you know, it's like selective remembrance, you know what I mean? Like we, we read those things, but we don't like that, but let's not talk about some of these things. Let's talk about ruling and all this, but no, there was more than that. And, and in maybe his most graphic foretelling about what is about to happen to him, he says in verse 32, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. You'll be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But verse 34 says, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what was said. They, they just didn't really have a framework for this. I mean, if you're reading these messianic promises about this king of kings that's going to come, it's hard to understand how in one sense, he's going to overthrow this oppressive government so that, that Israel is back to its glory so that the kingdom can reign. But at the same time, he's going to suffer. Like, how does that work? And they really just didn't get it. You might say, they're hearing it, but they don't see it. They don't see it. 
And so, but they're going to see it, right? So, so he's teaching them. And then in verse 35, and this is now kind of the conclusion of his teachings. And now we're going to start following this narrative. And it says in 35, as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. Okay, so now I want you to know this is going to start moving with great intentionality towards Jerusalem, towards the cross, where all of those things he just talked about are going to take place. You're going to see story after story where it'll say, as he entered into Jericho, and then as he entered into Bethphage, and then as he entered into Bethany, and then as he came to the Mount of Olives, as he descended down the Mount of Olives, as he entered into uh, city of Jerusalem. And then if, if you know the map and you know the geography, what it's really doing is it's just laying out the path to go from where he is right into Jerusalem. It, it'd be equivalent of, you, you know, you're in, in Portland and you're coming to Medford and it's like, okay, where, are they here yet? Well, they're, they're coming to Eugene and now they're entering into Cottage Grove and now they're entering into Roseburg. And now, you know what I mean? It's just, it's telling the story as it goes. And it, it's Luke's way of trying to build anticipation to say, everything's building to this. This is what all of the rest of the Luke is going to be about. And so today we're in this place, Jericho. Old Testament fans know of the city of Jericho. Um, Jericho is actually super low geographically. The city of Jericho actually sits 825 feet below sea level, which is weird because when you look on the map, it's not that far from the ocean. So it's like a bowl and Jericho's in the bottom of it. So when you read like, um, when you read in the scriptures or where you see here when he says we're going up to Jerusalem, the reason is Jericho's only 20 miles from Jerusalem, but Jerusalem sits 3,400 feet higher in elevation than Jericho. So when you're making that geographic move, it is an uphill climb the entire way. That's why even the Psalms that the people would sing are referred to, or when they were coming to Jerusalem for feasts like this, um, the Psalms in the uh, book of Psalms that you'll see, they're called like Psalms of Ascent. And they're Psalms that were intended to be sung and read as you're making your way up into Jerusalem. And so Jesus is telling them that they're going to go. Now, here's what you got to know. If he's going to Jerusalem for Passover, and Jerusalem during Passover is packed. It's, it's like the mall on Black Sunday. Or no, what is it called? Black Friday, whatever it is. Black Sunday. That's today. No, <laughs> the mall on Black Friday will be packed with people. You will not be able to get anywhere near in and out. It's just going to be like a mess over there, right? That's, think of that like in terms of Jerusalem at Passover. So if he's making his way there, now he's in Jericho, Jericho is now packed with people because Jericho was sort of the, um, the oasis town. Travelers making their way up to Jerusalem would stop in Jericho because it was known for these really um, awesome water oasis and lush green palms. And it was a great place to just kind of stop over. Remember, you're walking, you're not Ubering or any of that kind of stuff. So, so Jericho became a great place to kind of stop and rest. And it's still 20 miles away. So there's a ton of people here. And Jesus, making his way there, comes across this beggar. So it would stand to reason then, know this, there's more than one of them. Like this is strategic location for a guy who is dependent on the goodness of other people coming by. He's dependent on the charity of people passing by in order to exist. So what better place than to camp out on the roadside of the most popular hangover where all these are layover. That was bad. Um, that's Black Sunday. So um, the most popular layover where people who are spiritual are making their way to worship, probably a good place to be. You guys got to stop. You got to let that one go. That was embarrassing. But, but strategic place to maybe find some generous people, right? So this guy in our story is not the only beggar. There would be lots of beggars there at this time. Lots of people, lots of travelers, lots of activity that are going on. But now here's what I want you guys to indulge me for just a minute. I want, I want, I want you to empathize with this man for a really important reason. So I need you to do this. I want you all to just take a moment and everybody close your eyes. Everybody. And, and I, I will close my eyes so that I cannot look with judgment upon those who are being rebellious and not doing it. Close your eyes. And I want you to just think about something. Imagine that when you open your eyes again, it's still dark. 
that you will, you will never see again. What would your life look like? I mean, even just something as simple as, how would you get out of this room? Where would you go? Where, where's the aisle, depending on where you sit? How far away is that? How many seats is that? How are you going to navigate that? And then the turns and all the angles. That, like, how, how are you going to get out of just this room? And keep in mind, we have the benefit of having seen when we came in this room. So we can at least kind of envision its general layout. But just think about that. What would happen with your jobs? How many of you could still effectively do the job that you have, keep your eyes closed, if they never worked again, those eyes? I know there's a lot of technology to make up for stuff like that nowadays in some places, but still, I mean, if you're a carpenter, it's kind of hard to build a house when you can't see. How would you survive? How would you get around? And now, with your eyes closed still, imagine it is a hyper-religious society where your blindness is viewed as a curse. That God is displeased with you either because of your sin or the sin of your ancestors. And so as a result, he has taken away your eyesight. So that means people are ashamed of you. People don't want to be around you. Maybe your family's now gone, friends now gone, and now that guy that you can probably picture in your mind that's at the stoplight or the stop sign or outside the store that you're going shopping in that's there begging, that's now you. With your eyes still closed, can I just encourage you, first of all, with just a little side point here? We are graced with so many common graces that God has given us. Um, if there's someone here that, that doesn't have eyesight, uh, I'm not aware of, of who that is, but if that is, all uh, apologies to you, it's not in, in, intended to uh, dismiss or, or act like you're not here. But, but for those who can see, just as an example, just think about this. With your eyes closed still, you're just assuming that when you open them, they're going to work. Like, you just take that for granted, of course and in the morning, if, if you get up, and even if when you first open your eyes, they're blurry, we rub them and wash them to get whatever the sleep out of our eye, but we always assume the end result that they'll work. Some better than others, I know. That is a common grace that it's real easy to forget that it didn't have to be that way. And, and I want you to stop and empathize with this man for just a minute. Because I think you're going to see that this man is us. It's either who we are or who we were. And it's only because of the grace of God poured on our lives that we can actually see. So just think about it for just a second. Side of the road, begging for help, no other options anywhere. You can open your eyes. Verse 36 goes on to talk about him. And it says this. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Now, just so you know, just to say Jesus wouldn't have meant a whole lot to them. It's a really common name. Jesus of Nazareth is pointing out a specific. No, it's, it's Jesus of Nazareth. It's that one that you've heard about. That, that's the guy. And so he hears this. The name given him, Jesus of Nazareth. The name he responds with is what? Jesus, son of David. Now this is a big, big deal. Now let me explain to you why. All the people that have been waiting upon this promised Messiah that I told you about all along, one of the texts that they would have always held to was about Israel's greatest king, David. David, king of Israel, was a man who had his own issues, but he is lauded as Israel's most successful king that led Israel to its greatest heights, but had a heart after God. He wrote many of the Psalms where he pours his heart out to the Lord, all these kind of things. And at some point in his kingdom, he gets to a place where he's looking around, and he's looking at his palace, he's looking at how good he has it, 
And he looks down at the house of God, which was referred to as the tabernacle then, where, where the Ark of the Covenant was and where the very presence of God resided. And he looks down at that, and the tabernacle isn't a palace or a nice house. The tabernacle is just a tent. And he's going, this is messed up. I mean, I'm just a king and, and, and a fallen man in general. And David was very attuned with his own faults and his own issues. And so he's looking like, I have all of this and the presence of God dwells in a tent. And he's like, no, 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 I'm going to make you a house, Lord. I'm going to make a house for the Lord. And the Lord says, for reasons we don't have time to trace into, but the Lord says to him, no, 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 that's not what, I'm, what we're going to do. You're not going to be the man to do that for me. But I'll tell you what, David, I'll make a promise with you. And he makes what's referred to now as the Davidic covenant. A covenant just means a promise that God had made with the people. In this case, he's making that promise with David. And he says this. Can you put the text from 2 Samuel up? It says this. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. So let's track with this for just a second about what he's saying. David wants to build a house for God. God says, no, I'm going to build a house for you. Now, this is a metaphorical house. David's in a palace already. That's not what he's talking about. He's not like, David, no, I'm going to build you a new home. He's like, no, I'm going to build a house. Think lineage. Think legacy. Think heritage. And so he says to him, I'm going to build a house for you. When you lie down, when your days are fulfilled, when you're dead, David, one day someone's going to come, an offspring after you. He'll come from your body. He'll be one of your descendants, David. This is who I'm raising up, and I'm going to establish his kingdom. He'll build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is the guy they've been waiting for forever. This is the reason that the disciples, when Jesus talks about suffering, they don't understand it because they're, they're not thinking about some guy who's coming to suffer. They're waiting on this guy, the guy who's going to push Rome out of the way and finally get Israel back to its glory. He's going to make Israel great again. Sorry. So he makes this promise. Now, there's a couple of times where Either angels or the Bible itself makes allusions to the fact that Jesus is going to be this person. One of them happens in Luke chapter 1 when the birth announcement is given to Mary. We studied this not long ago, but Luke chapter 1 verse 31 says this. You can put the words up here. It says, Behold, he's speaking to Mary, this angel speaking to Mary. It says, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. And he will be great. He will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him, look, the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So there's no mistaking the fact that this angel speaking to Mary is saying, the Davidic covenant that your people hold to so tightly, Jesus is the one. Your son is going to be the one who will sit on the throne and his kingdom will never, ever end. Now, that's an angel that's saying that. But this in our story, going back to Luke chapter 18, this is the first time that some guy says, that's the son of David. That's the key. That's the, that's the result of the Davidic covenant. He is, and here's what he see. You got to understand in that culture, there was even a, a phrase that would say, uh, we have no king but Caesar. There's no other name under heaven by which men may be saved than that of Caesar. And Caesar was referred to as Lord. They would even say, Caesar is Lord. So when this guy says, when he, he's not calling him Jesus, son of Nazareth. He seems to, if I can use the pun, he seems to see him as being fit for a different name. And the name that he uses is you are the son of David. What he is literally saying is, that is not just a king. That's the king of all kings. That is the king who will reign forever. That's who that is. It is a powerful thing for him to say. And he's the, this is the guy who, like, 
unleashes and declares that. A beggar on the side of the road. Like, just imagine. You're someone, I'm announcing my candidacy for president. Awesome. How are you going to do that? Late night television, CNN, NBC. What are you, you going to do? No, no, no. I got a beggar. It's going to sit down at the end of Biddle Road. He's going to yell it out twice. That should do us for a good 2,000 years. Like, no one would do that. But who, who picks this guy? Like, how does this happen? How does this reveal to him like this? And here he is yelling out. Like, trust me, the Jewish people knew what that meant. So with all the noise and everything there, if he starts yelling out, that's the son of David, a ton of people who had averted their eyes from him for a long, long time would have actually turned and paid him some attention. Because let's, let's just be honest. We don't, we don't lock eyes with these guys. Most of us. And especially in a culture like that, if you're walking into Jerusalem and that guy's there, you're not paying him any attention. You're just don't even look at him, just pretend he's not there. Let's just move on. Just, no, don't make eye contact, then it gets weird. I might have to say something, just move on. But all of a sudden, that right there is the king of kings. And people will be like, what? Now, doesn't mean they like it. <laughs> they probably want to shut him up. They're looking, and it actually says in the text, verse 39, uh, and those who were in front of him rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Okay, here's one of my favorite things about the Bible. And this is one of the reasons I love this text so much. And it also alludes to, again, this idea about how all the Bible is about Jesus. Because all the Bible is about Jesus, there's so many things in Scripture that when you look at them, they overlap in just awesome ways. So think about what's happening. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. We will be looking at, eventually, a passage that's referred to when Jesus makes his way, not past the Jericho gates, but the Jerusalem gates, that's known as the triumphant entry. When Jesus the King comes in, and there's all these people, his disciples, that are there yelling, and what are they yelling? Hosanna! Hosanna! They're declaring, this is the Messiah who comes in the name of the Lord. But that happens way later. The first person to do this is not in Jerusalem's gate, it's outside Jericho's gate. And it's a dude on the side of the road who everybody else would ignore. And he's the one who starts out by saying, Hosanna, that's the son of David. And people hear it and they're like, shut up. Which also ties to the triumphant entry, remember that? The religious leaders of that day, what did they say? Jesus, tell your disciples to stop calling you the Messiah. You're going to start an uproar here. You can't say that. Tell them to stop. And Jesus says what? Man, if I tell them to stop, the rocks will start screaming. And so here's this guy. That's the son of David. And they're like, shut up, shut up, stop talking. That's the son of David. And he's like shouting it more and more and more. Ever notice how a lot of times the people who are the closest to Jesus seem to be the last ones to the party and understanding things? There's something for us in that. We'll get to that a little bit later. But take a look at what happened. There's so much cool stuff in this, okay? Verse 40. So Jesus stopped. And he commanded him to be brought to him. So Jesus is going by. He hears him saying, son of David. And he stops and says, bring him to me. Now, this is also in Mark chapter 10. The same story is in Mark chapter 10. And in Mark's account, there's a detail they throw in that I think is hilarious. Because here's all these people and they're going, shut up, shut up, shut up. Jesus, son of David, just shut him up. What are you even talking about? Shut up. And then Jesus goes, bring him to me. And suddenly in Mark, they go, oh, good cheer. Jesus wants to see you. Come with us. <laughs> and I just think that's funny. Like they get all spiritual all of a sudden. Like shut him up, shut him up. Oh yeah, good, good. Come with us, buddy. You're good day today. Like that. And I think it's funny because remember, this is coming right on the heels of when all the children are coming to Jesus and the disciples are like, get him out of here, get him out of here. And he's like, no, 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 suffer the children to come to me. So here he is going through, son of David, shut up, shut up, shut up. Hey, bring him to me okay kids and blind dudes that's who he wants to see all right come on come with me come with me like they're figuring this out as they go but they get they put their spiritual sunday best on right be of good cheer jesus wants to see you and and then also in mark's account it tells us that immediately uh, the words are he threw off his cloak and sprang up to meet him so remember blind guy and, and here's a cultural thing that's pretty important to understand if you're a blind beggar, your cloak is a huge deal. Like, your cloak in many cities was almost as if it was your permit to be able to beg. 
Like you, in some cities would even assign you a specific cloak or color or whatever it was that kind of was like, okay, he's real, he's legit, he's allowed to beg. And, and in any of those cities, when those guys had money, remember, highly religious society where people, even if they were going to give to you, they would not touch you, right? They would have no contact with them and they would feel like they were unclean if they had to do that with some cases. They wouldn't want anything to do with you. So they're just going to throw the money at you as, you as they go by. And the guy's cloaks would be spread out on the ground there. They would like kind of spread the bottom part out. On, it's literally, it's like a basket to catch the money that comes. And in many cases, their cloak was their only possession in this world. But this guy, so much faith in Jesus that he knows right now, well, not going to need this anymore. All because someone said, hey, Jesus wants to see you. He's like, oh, sweet, done with that, and I'm going to make my way over here. Springs up. It's tremendous faith seeing what happened. And then look, the verse goes on. And when he came near, he asked him, Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do for you? So let me give you another pause here. Just remember, like this is the guy everybody skips. Oh, people might throw some money as they go by, but you, you got to understand in that culture, this is not a popular dude. This is the kind of guy, like I said, you want to divert eyes from, just give whatever and, and move on by. But here we see Jesus stop, calls him over, talks to him. And even, I mean, look, his need is obvious. <laughs> what do you need? Um, sunglasses. Like ob his, obviously, his need is he's blind. So that's not the point. I, I think Jesus gives dignity to the people who have been passed by. I mean, we, we actually see, speaking of overlaying stories, remember the story of the Good Samaritan who stops and helps the man in the ditch that everybody else was skipping, that everybody else viewed as scum, that everybody else wanted nothing to do with? And now here we see Jesus doing that very same thing. And so can I just push on you guys though this is not trying to guilt trip at all but it's something that we need to think about we should really really consistently think about the fact that jesus stops turns to gives dignity to and speaks to people that everyone else was skipping so i'll give you an example like i said I, i'm on the board um, for the x29 us west network in terms of helping decide what church plants get funding so once a year, all these applications come in for plant, or funding for their church plants, and me and four other guys go through all these applications, and we do these online meetings, and we talk through all this stuff, series of meetings, and in fact, um, on December 1st, I think it is, or November 31st, whatever it was, 30th, November, I don't know, end of the month, we actually make the, here are the ones getting funded, and here's how much they're getting, and then we also have to tell those that aren't, for whatever reasons they happen to be, that that's not going to happen. So we're going through this whole process. Think about something. When David was anointed king, they brought all of Jesse's sons, all of David's brothers, into the room at the same time, right? Except who? David. They're like, he's so young, he's so weak, He's such a pipsqueak. Don't even bother bringing him out of the field because it's clearly not him. So they leave him out taking care of the sheep and they bring all the brothers in. But the Lord's like, nope, it's none of these guys. And the Lord says, listen, don't look just on his stature. Man looks on stature. The Lord looks at the heart. And think about it at the time. Israel had a really impressive king, King Saul. I mean, on the outside, stature, size, Saul was impressive. Taller than anybody else, strong, like that's the kind of leader we can follow, a guy that looks like that. Yes, we can follow that guy. And the Lord says, I'm not, I don't look at that outside, I look at the inside. And I couldn't help but feel, the last time that we had a Skype meeting with, with the other 829 guys and we were talking about it, um, I, I, I was talking with them and I was like, man, you can't help but feel that we're sitting here looking for Saul's. Because we're looking at these applications and going, who's the strongest teacher? Who's the strongest communicator? Who's got the strongest core group? Who's got the best following? Who has the most defined plan? Who has all this kind of stuff? And I, I know there's wisdom to a lot of those things and all, all that kind of stuff. But there was this moment of pause that, that's like, and this is, when you look at who Jesus seems to turn to, these decisions get pretty difficult. 
And Jesus was constantly stopping, pausing, and looking at the ones that everyone else skipped. I think we should carry that a little bit. I think we should think about that from time to time. I think I should think about that from time to time because it's really easy to think about that at Thanksgiving and Christmas, right? Who can we buy gifts for? Who can we do this? Like, that's part of the season. But it's hard to think about that in February when it's even colder outside or those sorts of things. Man, may the Lord give us wisdom and discernment for sure. But, man, give us if, we're, if we are being molded into the image of Jesus, that means somewhere along the line we become the type of people that look at the kind of people Jesus did. Does that make sense? And that's kind of a heart I think we need to pray for that's really easy not to pray for. Like, Lord, make us like you, because in reality, in the grand scheme of things, who are we that the king of kings would name and choose us? It's the same kind. He should have skipped us over too. Praise God that he didn't. Amen? Side note, though, do with that as you may, although I think it's important. But take a look at what this guy did. It says, when he came near, he asked him, what do you want to do? What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. The word well there translates, by the way, um, healed and saved. Okay? He has made you whole. Not, not just physically whole, spiritually whole. He's made you whole. Now I want you to see something. We already know this guy had incredible faith. If he's even without sight, able to say about Jesus, that's the king of kings. But there's something else that's really cool in this. The Bible's very specific in how it's written, amen? Like words aren't just thrown around. Like the Lord knew what he was doing when he wrote scripture. When this guy says, so Jesus says, what can I do for you? And he replies, Lord, the word that he uses there is a word, in Aramaic, it's the word Rabboni. And Rabboni is a revered title. Like you give it only to the top of the top. Like you don't give it to a middle level, middle level rabbi. You give it to the rabbi. But, but also, there's a personal connotation to that. Um, it doesn't just mean you are the master, you are the leader, you are the rabbi. It means you are my rabbi. You are my master. You are my Lord. And it is such a revered title that's used for almost no one that in the Bible it actually only shows up one other time other than the actual um, blind Bartimaeus accounts that we see here. And it occurs in the story of Mary Magdalene when she encounters the risen Jesus at the tomb. And again, the overlaying parallels to me are fascinating. So take a look if you would at this text in John 20. In John 20, outside the tomb, it says, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. So, blind Bartimaeus, begging outside the city of Jericho. We have Mary outside the tomb. And she wept, and she stood and looked into the tomb. But she saw, and she saw two angels in white sitting with the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And having said this, she turned around, and she saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. So in other words, she's blind. She can see him, but she can't see him. She doesn't see what's going on. And so she speaks to him, and Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she asked him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Now she's the beggar. Please, where is he? I'll just take him away. Just please, sir, tell me where he is. And then look, Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher, master, Lord, my king. The level of faith that we see with this blind beggar on the side of a road, the Bible uses the same words to equate to the faith of one of Jesus' closest followers who sees him right after he had walked out of the tomb. That's powerful. I mean, the disciples who Jesus says, this is what I'm about to do, don't see it at all. This guy who's never seen a thing knows who this is. And he calls him, you are my Lord, Rabboni. 
And immediately it says, he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Just imagine that, guys. First time you open your eyes, first thing you see, there's Jesus standing right in front of you. Like, that's got to be crazy. Like, he wins, right? He wins. Um, Except that, like I said, this is not a story about what Jesus did. This is a story about what Jesus does. We believe that those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, one day, should the Lord tarry, one day we will close our eyes. We will lie down with our fathers, as the scriptures say, but we will open our eyes again in a new eternity to see our resurrected lamb as if he had just been slain. We will see Jesus. The Bible says things like, right now our vision is, is not clear. It's like we see through a glass dimly. We can't quite see everything, but on that day, oh, we will see in full. One day our faith will be made sight and Jesus will be right in front of us. He still does it. And it goes on. And all the people, in verse 43, immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Okay, so I, I got a few things I just want to point out before we leave. Just a few things. Um, no particular order or anything like that, depending on where you are in life or your faith walk or whatever the case may be. Some will hit you different than others, but I think these are important to point out. So the first one is this. And this isn't, it's important, but not everyone was healed. And that's lame to say, but not everyone was healed. The person who was healed was the person who didn't just have faith. He had faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's super important, guys. Like, it's not just faith in whatever, but only Jesus. That's why it's called King of Kings. It means of any kings, he's the king. It's not he's one of the kings. He's Lord, Master, King of Kings, and only faith in Jesus is going to heal and save. You guys tracking with me on that? Say amen. The next one is this. Faith precedes sight. In the story, faith preceded sight. And and actually, in our own lives, faith precedes sight. I don't know anybody who waited and got everything, their theology, their understanding, their belief systems, their historical facts, got everything all figured out and was like, yep, now I can see it's definitely Jesus. I will therefore now believe. I don't know anyone who that was their story. I know people who learn different parts and other things, but in the end, at a certain point, it is putting faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and trusting that he's going to take care of the rest. So if you're here today and you've been sitting back trying to figure out all these things and you're waiting until you get enough of the picture assembled that you can see it, let me just encourage you, it's not usually how it works. Put your faith in him. Number three, healing and salvation leads to worship. Notice in the story that as soon as he gets his sight back, it says, and he was glorifying God, and the people when they saw it gave praise to God. Now, in Luke's writing, um, praising God or people giving praise to God is actually only used in a couple of specific circumstances. The angels at his birth, the shepherds at his birth announcement, this blind man, the crowds at the triumphant procession, but listen... We don't see the disciples truly worshiping God as God until after the resurrection. And like I said, sometimes the people that are closest to him are the last ones to the party to understand what's going on. And you go, so what's your point in that? I would just say this. You might be so close to Jesus that you've forgotten what's really going on in all this stuff. And, and what I mean by that is this. Like, I mean, I, I don't remember a time in my life that I wasn't in church. Like, I grew up in the church. I mean... I might have been born in the church the way my family was. Like, we were always in the church, always in the church. But it took a long, long time before I actually learned to worship. Because sometimes it's just it's too familiar. It's just part of it. It's what we do. It becomes routine, all this kind of stuff. But, but let me just encourage you, listen. Worship is not just one of the things we do. Singing songs to him before service is not just a, a, a formality that we do. Like, I don't know, they did it before, so we'll do it now. It's not just an icebreaker. <laughs> like, it is a natural result to the understanding that Jesus Christ has saved and healed you. And that's what it's about. And so, can I just say this with all due respect, but 
if you're one that you're like, I don't like to worship and I don't like to sing, it's not really my thing, and I just go, you're right, it's not your thing. Like, it's not your thing. Like, so with all due respect, like, get over yourself. It's his thing. And when you look at the scriptures, people who experience the salvation of God, the reaction is worship. And you're like, but I just don't like it. Don't, uh, well, do. I should tell you about heaven because it might be a difficult transition for you at first. (laughs) It's going to be a lot of singing. And I'll just tell you this too, loud singing. Lots of really, really loud singing. Those of you that don't like our worship volume are like, yeah, but there's no pain in heaven. Okay, touche, but still. Like, worship isn't about us, and so don't make it about you, man. Remember that you've been saved and healed by one who should have just passed you by, and worship him. Number, I don't know what number this is, 13, I don't know. Um, now worship music, uh, not all worship is musical, okay? We see this in the story. What does it say in verse 43? Immediately, he recovered his sight and what? Let's try that again. Uh, Verse 43, give you a second to find it. And immediately he recovered his sight and he followed him. He didn't just sing to him. He followed him. He left behind his his money-making opportunities. He left behind his past. He left behind his history. If he had friends or family, he left all of them behind and he followed him. But you want to speculate a little bit? Think about this. Where did he follow him? Where's Jesus going? He's going to Jerusalem where blind Bartimaeus will now be seeing Bartimaeus and see Jesus die. Now, these are extra biblical accounts. It's historical authors that wrote that may or may not be true. I don't know. But, But there are actually writings out there that say that Bartimaeus became an ardent follower of Jesus that never left him, that even equates him to some of the unnamed stories in the resurrection and Garden of Gethsemane stories that would say that, that even at the tomb, blind Bartimaeus never left him. As if he was saying, no, man, I know. I know how this goes down. I know who he is. I was blind and he healed me. And you guys think it's over, but we're about two days away from something cool. Just imagine that. Even later, Plato will write one of his most famous teachings ever done, and it's called Timaeus. And the narrator in the story is Timaeus, which means son of Timaeus, Bartimaeus. And in that story, it talks about faith and sight, that he became such a legendary, if you will, follower of Jesus in the early church that Plato wrote stories about him and used him as examples much, much, much later. And so this is what I want to say, like, When you realize, when you really realize what Jesus has done for you, how does it not result in being willing to follow him, even if it means following him into a really difficult place or situation? Especially if you know that no matter how difficult that place or situation is, that there's resurrection on the other end of that. So follow him. Not following probably means you're going to miss out on some pretty cool stuff. So that's what we're talking, like discipleship and urging people to get involved in the community and spread the gospel and all that. Like, that's follow Jesus and watch the resurrection stories that happen. And then the last one is this. Healing and salvation leads to witness. If you notice the last sentence of this story, and all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Man, that dude had a story to tell, didn't he? Can you imagine, like, for the rest of his days, like, why do you follow Jesus? Oh, man. You know how many people skipped over me? I was nothing. I was in such bad straits. I've been begging for years, just waiting on somebody to show me some sort of mercy. And I started hearing about him. And when I realized who he was, I was just like, oh man, if I ever get a chance, if I could ever cross paths with that guy. But it'll probably never happen. I mean, how will I even know? I'm blind. And then one day I heard he was coming and I just was like I can't believe he came to me but I ain't missing this have mercy on me that was all I asked I didn't pay for it I didn't do anything for it I didn't work at it I didn't do anything the only thing I did was believe believe in who he is and believe that he can do what he says he can do and the next thing I know my eyes open and that's the first thing I ever saw was my savior and my king so I've been following ever since And you won't believe the stuff that he can do in people's lives. You won't believe the, like, look, he died and he rose again for you too. 
So believe him and follow him. Church, blind Bartimaeus' story is our story. It's the same exact story. We once were blind, but now we see. We were dead. We've been raised to new life. We have been reborn and saved because of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And now we are called to be witnesses to that, to a whole world outside who is blind to the reality of Jesus Christ and his grace. And they won't know it accidentally. We have to go tell them. They're blind. So we have to go tell them, like, there's this guy named Jesus, and he can fix this. And he can fix you, and he can save you. And the best news is, no matter how gnarly you are, he wants to. Amen? Okay, let's stand and worship, or let's stand and pray together. Father, thank you so much for the reality that this is our story, that you saved a wretch like us. Thank you, God, that you didn't pass us over. Thank you, God, that instead you passed over our sin. You, you saved us from judgment. You have set us to walk in high places. You've destined us to be adopted into the family of God and to rule and reign with you in your kingdom forever and ever. <laughs> Somehow, we are joint heir with the King of Kings. You are our Rabboni, our Master, our King, and our Lord. Thank you for that truth, Lord. Lord, for some people here, they can't believe that that would be true. I pray, God, that you would break that down and grant them, Lord, grant all of us the faith. Lord, may no one leave this place without knowing you. But we know it can't stop here. So as we follow you out of this place, Lord, where, where are you taking us? Who is blind around us that needs to see? Who can we share our story to, Lord? Will you give us, Lord, the grace and the power by your spirit to be witnesses of your healing and your salvation to the people around us who so desperately need to see you, Lord? Open their eyes, grant them faith, bless them with salvation, and Lord, bring them in here so that we can just worship and sing to you louder and louder, Lord. We thank you for the testimony of your spirit. We thank you for the testimony of your word. And we thank you that you saved us. Now, Lord, may we be faithful and obedient to you as we go and share with others. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Before you go, two quick things. Number one. If you are here and you're like, I, I need this Jesus, I need this salvation, please come see me or see one of the pastors or even tap someone on the shoulder right next to you. There are stories in here over and over and over of how God has saved people like you or much worse in some cases. I'm not going to point any fingers. But um, also... Remember, Wednesday night, Thanksgiving service, man, to get together and celebrate not just our common graces that God has given us, but to be able to celebrate the very fact that he has saved us. Amen? All right. I love you guys. God bless you. Have a great holiday week. Uh, the setup crew guys are in the back like, hey, could you do that stack chairs eight high announcement again? So there you go.